Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Robin Lynch, who is owner of Regenerative Design Studios. Today we will discuss beautifying America's cities. Robin, a third-generation landscape designer and horticulturist who studied landscape architecture, consultation, project management, and construction administration, is the daughter of Richard Lynch, one of the original founding presidents of the Palos Verdes Rhododendron Society, and an avid and highly skilled garden designer and noted lecturer, and a granddaughter of Robert Jack Lynch, the author of the Encyclopedia of Gardening. Robin is a full member of the American Society of Landscape Architects, ASLA, as well as a licensed landscape contractor. Robin, welcome. Thanks for having me, Elena. This is a topic I think that many of us are not very familiar with, and yet it is so important for our quality of life. Let's just start with something really basic. Sorry? Agreed. What would you say is the definition of beautifying our cities? How would you define that? Well, as you said, it's a topic that many of us seem unfamiliar and yet occurs around us all the time. And it is happening more and more throughout the United States and throughout the world. And city beautification involves many different components. Much of this is through greening, through the addition of canopy trees and interstitial plantings. A lot of it is also the application of what is known in our industry as complete streets. Complete streets incorporate multimodal transportation. This means that we are evolving away from the predominantly vehicular dominated and and oriented uh, streets, and we're incorporating multimodal transportation, which includes bike lanes and walking paths and is more ADA compliant for the rest of our community. And in addition to that, also beautiful stormwater control measures. As you know, we currently have sewer systems where our rainwater is directed towards drains and emptied out into the ocean, but what new stormwater control measures are incorporating are lush landscapes where uh, curb cuts allow the water to infiltrate these new planters. They slow the stormwater down, and they also allow for the plants and the soil to filter out the pollutants before they reach the ocean. Oh, that sounds really good. It's beautiful, (laughs) as well as functional. So as a resident of a coastal state, I'm particularly interested when I hear you say a way of slowing down getting all these waters out to the ocean and reducing pollution. Is it something that's very complex or very expensive? It's actually very simple and founded in ancient techniques, uh, very natural techniques. And it's a way to break up 
the monotony of our urban systems. So, for example, in a heavily urbanized area where we have a lot of impervious surfaces, such as roofs, streets, and parking lots that all catch pollutants from cars and people and animals such as oil or brake dust or trash, and there is no filtration system in place uh, to mitigate the rainwater capturing the pollutants, sheet flowing them into the sewer systems and out to ocean. And so, and, and also, as you know, here in Southern California in 2017, we are still and have been for many years in a very severe drought. So this will slow down stormwater and it will filter out the pollutants and also it allows for the infiltration of stormwater deep into our aquifers to recharge them. The addition of landscape and trees will also cool the urban heat island effect in our urban areas and add functional beauty. That is a perfect segue for my next question, which is I just recently read an article about this term that you used and I, that I had never heard of before, the urban island effect. It, it sort of did a double take on urban island. What? Would you tell us what that is and how it's possible that there could be so different temperatures, such different temperatures within the same urban area, sometimes within a few blocks, I understand. Yes. So the urban heat island effect is where we have so much impervious, hard, and uh, reflective surfaces that there is no absorption of sunlight and heat. And that heat that is generated is reflected back into the environment around us. And as you may know, we have microclimates around us all over the place. So, for example, in San Pedro, where our office is located and many of our employees, including myself, live, our office is in downtown San Pedro, which is a, an adorable town, but it's you know, somewhat of a of an urban environment. And then I live closer to the ocean. And there can sometimes be a 20-degree difference, and this is just in the matter of maybe 20, 30 blocks. So you can see that the environment around us really has a very significant impact on elements such as temperature. And a lot of this is due to the site uh, that we find ourselves in. Are there a lot of impervious hardscape surfaces, such as buildings and roads and parking lots? Or are these amenities broken up by large shading canopy trees and landscapes? All of that has a direct impact on the temperatures we find around us. It's funny, I completely understand when you describe the temperature difference between the two places in your area. It makes perfect sense to me because here in Florida, there's a significant difference between the coastal areas 
and the inland areas temperature-wise on a fairly regular basis of a few degrees. Because of the weather patterns, the cooling breezes coming in from the ocean, etc., what I was surprised about when I heard about the urban island effect was that sometimes it was a three or four block difference within a city and there would be a four degree or higher. It said the difference, for example, in Las Vegas could be as much as 7.3 degrees, Albuquerque 5.9 degrees, and that they were striving to plant trees is what this study said or this article referred to the, what they were doing to address the issue. That just seems like the kind of thing that would have been part of an urban planning concept. Yes, except that like all design, even urban design, all design is a process. And all contributors uh, to that process are affecting the greatest level of change inherent in their knowledge base. And so some of these outdated design techniques are due to the fact that our world around us and subsequently our climate has changed in reflection with us. And so much of these design changes that are new on the horizon are our awakening to solving the problems that we find around us. So we frequently wonder, for example, here in Los Angeles, why is our beautiful river imprisoned in concrete? Now, this project was done by the Army Corps of Engineers, and there was a great threat of flooding in the city, and they responded quickly and efficiently to channelizing our river into these concrete uh, embankments. But what we found is it actually doesn't really slow the water down very much, and it's also very unattractive. And so now the Army Corps of Engineers, as well as our fantastic mayor, Eric Garcetti, and numerous communities around the L.A. River are working to free it from these concrete confinements and at the same time really enable the communities to approach the river and see its beauty and they're doing this by reducing the concrete in a number of different areas and naturalizing its banks. So in addition to slowing the river down and protecting the communities around it from flooding, you're also achieving this more of a multilateral productive function in that you're also achieving beauty and aesthetics and a restratification of biological confluences such as ecology and habitat. And at the same time, it's delightful and it's a form of recreation and entertainment to be able to sit by a beautiful water's edge and hear the birds around you, listen to the wind in the trees, see the butterflies, smell the amazing fragrance. I know, Elena, you said you're in Florida, but here in Southern California, we have this coastal sage scrub, which smells amazing. They used to call it 
cowboy cologne <laughs> because it has such an intoxicating fragrance to it. I'm sure you have plant communities around you that smell equally lovely and certainly far better than concrete and asphalt, wouldn't you say? Well, I'm thinking that just about anything is going to smell Okay, no, I should temper that. They're probably inner city areas that don't smell better than asphalt. But, yes, definitely. Why is, why is city beautification such a controversial topic? It seems to generate a lot of heated debate. I think that any debate around it, probably could be summarized in terms of how much it costs uh, and that that can be a point of contention due to the fact that everyone allocates or feels that our uh, city, state, and federal budgets should be allocated in the multifarious different ways that they see fit. But if you think about the fact that this is a corrective system taking place, that frequently we are attempting to solve problems that were built into the environment around us as opposed to allocating our funds on new projects, for example, it, then it's almost like going to the doctor to fix a cold or a flu or a broken bone, if you think about it. One wouldn't hesitate if they had a broken leg to go to the doctor and get it fixed, right? Generally speaking, yes. Generally speaking, <laughs> there, there may be some communities that have a, a different resolution to that, but the majority of people would want that bone set and a cast put on and, you know, have it corrected so they could walk again. So this is what city beautification and urban greening is, is really all about. It's it's really just fixing the broken bones that uh, have occurred in our society and making our cities more livable, more walkable, more enjoyable. And when you get back to the dollar amount in the, let's say, argument or conversation, what actually results, which is really fantastic but inherent, is a rise or an increase in property values because people want to live and work and recreate where they feel good. Designers call this the psychology of design. When you're in a beautiful space, you feel good. And when you feel good, you are a more productive member of society. You're healthier. You are able to work more and more effectively and more efficiently, and you contribute more. And that's really a reflection of our environments and our communities working well around us. What about the issues that have the opposite effect, like pollution, like traffic, like noise pollution, that are oftentimes an inherent part of big cities. How do these come into play when we talk about urban beautification? Urban beautification actually mitigates each one of those items. Pollution, as we discussed earlier, is captured and infiltrated through greater, more exposed, per pervious 
surfaces, such as landscaped areas and bioswales and infiltration planters. Noise is softened when it's broken up. So imagine being on a 5, 10 lane wide highway that's a monotony of, of just that system. It can be very loud, especially to live adjacent to. But imagine if there was a buffering system of trees in between our roadways. Or imagine if those roadways were slowed down. And in not necessarily highways or freeways out here, but uh, along our urban city streets and our more rural areas, if people were able to ride their bikes, you would have less pollution from vehicles and there would be a lot less noise and also an increase in safety. It's much easier to be in a life-threatening accident in a car than it would be if people were all on bikes. Well, bicycles, certainly here in Florida, in South Florida, are a topic of great controversy and much friction. The bicycle riders hate the vehicles, and the vehicles hate the bicycle riders, and the small towns are often either very in favor of bicycle paths or duking it out because they don't want the bicycle paths. How do you go about finding a middle ground that works for everyone? And I find that so unfortunate because I really feel that we should support one another. We can't always ride our bikes and we can't always be in our cars. If I were to drive to Sacramento, I, I probably wouldn't want to ride a bike. But if I wanted to commute around town or, you know, if I had kids who wanted to go to school, it would be so great. I remember when I was a kid, I used to walk and ride my bike to school. And so a lot of this, this contentiousness between the two communities. What I've heard is from people who are opponents to uh, opening up or creating more bike paths is what they've said is people don't ride their bikes. No one, no one's using these bike lanes. Well, what happens is you've, you've heard the term build it and they will come. So a lot of, of uh, the existing systems in our towns, our communities, our cities are not bike friendly. It is not safe, nor is it enjoyable for one to ride their bike unless they are a diehard and they are very brave because when I said earlier that, uh, you know, accidents are reduced if more people are on bicycles, the number of accidents can still stay, stay the same if there's a confluence and a conflict between vehicles and bicyclists. And so as more systems are incorporated into our communities for bicyclists, it actually becomes much safer, for example, in Indianapolis, uh, they created a new master plan that increases uh, the bike paths for people to be able to ride to work uh, on their bicycles versus uh, in cars. These are actual, well-thought-out, connected bike paths 
in their community that connect them between their home and their city centers. And our project, our, one of our most recent projects on the exposition phase two light rail project, which is our fantastic, beautiful new train, which out here we don't have very many of them, but they are increasing more and more. This new train, which connects to phase one, links downtown Los Angeles to the beach in the city of Santa Monica. And our part on this uh, new component, this uh, about six and a half mile light rail train, had uh, five and a quarter mile of a dedicated bike path. And I have to tell you, Elena, it is beautiful. It is landscaped on both sides. There are new trees. There are new plants. And they're 90% California native, which our company had uh, a very significant role in, in uh, achieving that 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 number, that 90% goal, which we feel very proud of. And I have had people come up to me on that bike path over and over and thank me for this project. Now, I have to tell you, I'm sure they had no idea who I was. There were many of us who were out on this this bike path in our hard hats and our our boots and, and our safety vests. But, um, you know, we happened to be out there and they came up and thanked us. And I'm so glad that they did because it, it really was very rewarding for me. I felt very, I feel very proud of this project and I feel very proud of, of entities that create dedicated bike paths. This is between 17 and 22 feet wide and are landscaped on either sides. And it's just such a fantastic new addition to our city. What do you do when the physical space is limited? It's one of the issues that we face certainly in roads that are ocean fronting where you just have a two-lane road and everybody has to share space. How do you work that in a harmonious way? Because if you have a bicycle and they're riding slowly and there isn't a lot of space, then that means now that you have a very long trail of cars that is stuck behind that bicycle because they can't pass. And I think this is one of the reasons that you get this friction. Yes, I think that it can't be really relegated to a, a uh, you know a, a cookie cutter approach or you know a boilerplate uh, solution. That designers have to look at a bigger scale and think how can we share space in a functional and beautiful way together that doesn't leave people frustrated, doesn't make the bicyclists feel unsafe, and it doesn't make the uh, the automobile drivers feel frustrated that they're being held up. So that's why designers are looking at larger scale approaches. So instead of just one road and let you know having a really simple approach, let's just slap a bike path on this one road, you know, taking a, a bigger step back and, and looking at the adjacent roads around it. Could we make this road one way? Could we uh, maybe reduce parking or could we move parking to a different location or what uh, better options could we have? Some In some towns, bicycle lanes are allowed off streets, so such as uh, on, on sidewalks. And so what they're looking at is could 
one sidewalk going one direction be for pedestrians and then the sidewalk on the other side be for bicyclists? Or could we turn this road into a one-lane road and if there's a parallel road running to it, that could be the opposite direction? So there, it, it really involves asking a lot of questions and performing really thorough analysis and studies of, of the, the system as a whole versus just a single symptom. How do you approach a new project? What are those challenging first steps and how do you tackle them? New projects are really about discovering what the program is. Who are the users? What are the goals? What are we trying to achieve? What, who, who will benefit from this? And, you know, what is the scale? Who is the client? Who are your partners or your, who, whomever you'll be joint venturing with, such as engineers or architects or other landscape architects, that sort of thing. So you also want to really make sure, at least this is a big part of our company's approach, is to always recognize site-specific design. Designers should avoid trying to create a monument to themselves. They really are trying, especially on an urban or a city level, they're really affecting change for the users. It's more, it's about more than just us. And so we really need to look at our site. A solution or a problem here in California could be very different than one in Florida or Washington, D.C. or in Indianapolis or any other place in China or in Italy. And so we look at precedents clearly and, you know, we see what were problems in other areas and what were the applied solutions and would that work here. But really it's about what does the site want? What is best here? So the reason that we're so proud that the Expo project went 90% California native is because we're here in California. We wouldn't be using California natives if we were working on a project in Florida. We would want to make sure that we use the appropriate plant palette and we address the needs of the communities there. You probably have very different communities in Florida than we have here in California. The way that they recreate or part of their culture, what is significant or their history could be different. And so it's really about performing a very thorough inventory and analysis initially to find out what are the needs and what are the goals and how can we best achieve them. It's interesting that you talk about the importance of local indigenous plant life because it was one of the thoughts that occurred to me when I read about the tree planting project. And I thought, well, I understand why it's so hot in Las Vegas and why they're having this heating, overheating issue in the city. That seems very clear. But how do you address planting new trees with the purpose of cooling down an urban environment when you're in an area that suffers from drought frequently or in the case of Las Vegas where you have desert conditions? 
You have to look strongly towards the species that are native to that area, and that is because they are adapted to their environment. Here, for example, in Southern California, there has have been years and years, decades almost, of the use of tropical plants. A lot of that happened when the jet-setting Hollywood crowd in the 50s went to Cuba. And what they, that's where they went and they partied and they had a great time. And what they decided to do when they came back is, is bring that landscape and that aesthetic with them because to them, a lush landscape indicated affluence to be able to surround yourself with this near jungle quality aesthetic meant I have money. I have power. But more and more, what we've found is we don't have the water. <laughs> we, it's a resource that is in short supply out here. And so people then, they had moved so far away from learning how to work with California native plants and the availability wasn't necessarily there, that it's it's taken a, a huge change and a shift. And uh, I feel very proud. Our company is very knowledgeable and experienced in what I like to call organic elegance. And it's the ability to work with species that are adapted to your area and to thrive without the advent of supplemental irrigation, certainly not in copious amounts, such as the utilization of tropical plants in our area. Now, clearly, there is always an establishment period, even for California native plants here in California. And think of it like a newborn baby in a nursery, in the hospital. They require a lot of extra nurturing when they're young, right? They can't just uh, jump on a bike or, you know, get behind the wheel of a car. When you're a newborn, you need a lot of extra care and sheltering and being gentle with them and nurturing them. It's the same thing with new installations, even with the utilization of native species anywhere. They need a little extra nurturing in here. And Southern California, what that means is they'll need supplemental irrigation for the first year or two. And after that, you can turn those systems off. If you're looking at a plant species that requires a lot of water in an area where you don't have a lot of water, then perhaps that's not an ideal match. But then how do you get that shade that you're looking for? Well, <clears throat> oak trees provide a lot of shade, and they need very little water once established. So unless you're in a riparian area, areas that have you know streams or, or waterways, you don't want to select species that require a lot of water. And again, that goes back to site-specific design. So what is the area? Where are you designing? Let's say you are designing for a streetscape. If it is very hot and there is a lot of pavement, then you have to almost mirror a desert environment. And then you select species that are adapted to those temperatures and those heat fluctuations and the limited amount of water. 
What kind of design trends are you seeing across the country? Are cities following these ideas that we're discussing, focusing on something specific to the area, using local plants, integrating into the lifestyles of the community? What, what kinds of trends are you seeing? Absolutely. The trends that are happening across our country and across the world are headed towards sustainability. Now, sustainability really means to continue the system without further damage. And our company, Regenerative Design Studios, really seeks to fill more to the system than to just let it uh, exist on its own path. So we use a process-oriented systems thinking approach. So, And it's all based on natural systems. And the goal is that the output is greater than the input. So we seek to restore, renew, and revitalize our sources of energy and materials. And we create beyond sustainable systems. And we do so in order to integrate the needs of society with the integrity of nature. We feel truly that this system creates beyond vibrant ecologies. It creates exuberant cultures that will continue to generate a surplus of fertility and vitality. And it is when we live in environments that meet that description that we really form the symbiotic, ecological, and sociological relationships that make communities thrive. Are these concepts trending across the country? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. If entire cities such as Indianapolis or Los Angeles, for example, Phil Washington, the CEO of Metro, that's uh, all of our trains and buses down here. He coined the frame, uh, excuse me, the phrase transit-oriented communities. And our entire cityscape is changing. In fact, we just passed Measure M, and that came on the heels of Measure R. It was a half-cent sales tax increase, and it has produced all of our new trains and bike paths and multimodal complete streets. It is absolutely changing the landscape of our city, and many, many cities are following. This term has become so highly utilized that it's being used on a, on a national level, transit-oriented communities and complete streets. It's what every urban designer and landscape architect and architect and engineer that I know and work with, and I work with some internationally renowned uh, fellows in the field, it's all we talk about, and it thrills and excites us. We hear so much discussion about how our infrastructure is in trouble, how basic parts of our infrastructure, such as roads and bridges that we take for granted, are in a very poor state. Are the dollars necessary for that, the maintenance and the upgrades for the infrastructure competing with the city beautification that we've been discussing, or are these completely independent concepts? 
I think that they all work hand in hand. If you have, let's say, for example, a monoculture of pavement for a roadway, it's it's feeling a lot of the heat and it is absorbing all of the wear and tear and the damage and, you know, necessarily uh, uh, flooding or in colder climates, the expansion contraction of, of snow and, and its melt. But if you diversify that environment and you incorporate landscape and plantings and you reduce vehicular traffic to a lighter system such as bicycling or walking or riding your skateboard or uh, roller skates, that sort of thing, your, you, your utilization, your load upon that system is reduced and you're extending its life and therefore saving on inherent maintenance that's required of it. So there's a way for the two to combine. Absolutely. And this is happening more and more as engineers, architects, and landscape architects start to work more collaboratively with one another. And like I said on the Expo Phase 2 Light Rail project, it, it was so fantastic to be able to work collaboratively with all of these different uh, industries because each person contributes something different. I'm not an engineer, and so I can't speak to that level of knowledge. And many of my partners on, on this project aren't landscape architects. And so each person contributes their knowledge set and their skills and their new thoughts and ideas. And, you know, we created this collaborative environment where people wanted to bring the best that they had to this project, and you can really see it. It just shines. It looks fantastic. Every person whom I've ever met who lives in this area, works in this area, has very proudly told me their experiences with this project. They loved riding the train or they loved getting on the bike path. I know a lot of people that now use this bike path to commute to work from home. Every day they've gotten out of their cars and they ride their bikes. And it's safe, and they're not clogging up traffic. There's no cars behind them because it's a dedicated bike path. It is only for bicyclists and pedestrians. Excellent. One of the ideas that they mentioned in that article I was talking about with the urban island was the urban heat island effect. <laughs> Thank you, urban heat island effect. Yeah, I get heat. There you go. <laughs> doesn't sound right. Yeah, you got to have the heat because that's the most significant part of it. <laughs> right, but it's the urban island where I get stuck. <laughs> right. It's counterintuitive. island effect. Yeah. Right, the urban heat island effect. One of the things there that they talked go. about that I thought was wonderful was this concept of rooftop gardens. Mm. And is that doable? Because it sounds lovely, but it also sounds really expensive and complicated. It's absolutely doable. In fact, Chicago is the city, they should be so proud, with the greatest area of green roofs in the nation. Green roofs are not only just absolutely stunningly beautiful, they have such an effect on the environment. Imagine all that heat radiating off of a rooftop, 
especially if it's black or especially if it's in an industrial area covered in, you know, air conditioners. All of that is reduced when that rooftop is green. So you ask about expense. It depends on if a rooftop is being retrofitted. You know, it's, it's actually an existing rooftop that is now being retrofitted for a green roof or if it is a new system, let's say a new installation. So that's that can really be where uh, the dollars can come in, but if you consider what the benefits are, I think that it outweighs the cost. What about areas that have the potential for hurricane strikes, such as, well, most of the coast, the eastern coast of the country? Is having a garden on your roof likely to increase the hazard that trees and plants might land in somebody's living room if the area is hit by a hurricane? Well, again, a lot of this has to go back to site-specific design, and a roof has to be very big and very strong. Uh, it has to have a, an increased uh, structural load-bearing capacity if it's going to house trees. Mostly green roofs, especially on a retrofitted roof, house what we call sedums, or what are known as sedums. So they're sort of like succulents, and they're very lightweight. And certainly I'd rather be hit in the face with a sedum, which is like a succulent, than a shingle <laughs> in a hurricane. There's a good idea. You know what I mean? Yes. <laughs> if I have to be hit. <laughs> so you think the concept but, would work? Uh, I Absolutely. What about biomimicry? This was something that I heard a lot about a while ago that seemed to be gaining in popularity, the idea sort of of a copying nature. Tell us about that, if you would. Well, biomimicry and, and copying nature are the easiest, most uh, thought-free, I, I think, ways to apply design because these systems have evolved for eons. And imagine, think of it in, as a ratio. You know, think of all that you have learned in your lifetime up to this point versus what you knew when you were a child, right? So a lot more knowledge has been gained in your lifetime over this course than, than what you originally started out with. So Biomimicry is really just about utilizing the knowledge and the systems that have, have adapted and formed and found success in their different areas throughout eons. Would you give us an example of biomimicry within the context of city beautification that we're talking about? Absolutely. And let's use another bio word, bioswales. So we recently just authored an article on bioswales in Park and Rec's business magazine, which uh, I, I highly recommend you're taking a read at that. It's probably one of the most uh, authoritative levels of, of de defining and exemplifying uh, bioswales that, that I think is, is currently out there. But a bioswale is, it acts just like uh, a river system, but on a smaller scale, if you think about it. So imagine the difference between a channelized gutter and a road, and that's on, say, the micro scale, and the macro scale would be our channelized LA River. Well, a bioswale breaks up that concrete and it utilizes natural materials such as soil, st 
stone, mulch, plants. It's just as channelized if you think about its shape. You know, it, it's a swaled U-shape system with uh, sloping walls and a U-shaped bottom. And then there's also a, a 1% grade change to direct the water downstream. And then imagine that on a larger scale, such as a naturalized river system. So we are utilizing bioswales more and more. For example, we I want to say we had 10 different lengths of bioswales totaling over a mile on the Expo project, and, and bioswales can be utilized in, in a private uh, residential scale, you know, a really small scale. You could put them in your own backyard, or they could be used on, on a streetscape level. So cities like Portland and Oregon are using them more and more in, in uh, adaptive urban environments. In fact, even here in, in Los Angeles, in downtown Los Angeles, we're using bioswales and infiltration planters. So this is taking an, an you know, adapted over eons system of, of of directing stormwater and reducing pollution and uh, recharging aquifers, slowing the water down before it hits our storm drains, and applying it in an urban environment in order to solve our, our complex human problems. What cities would you say in the U.S. stand out? Which would you say are model cities when it comes to city beautification and putting into practice these concepts that we're talking about. I know you've mentioned several, Indianapolis and Chicago and, of course, uh, your area. Um, are there others that come to mind in a, in, for particular reasons? Or I'll, I'll let you share your thoughts. Yeah, I mean, definitely in addition to Chicago and Indianapolis and Los Angeles, I, I also highly commend cities that have uh, very comprehensive uh, uh, transit-oriented systems, such as trains, um, you know, Boston and San Francisco with the BART, and Portland and Seattle as well. Also, communities that are very bikeable and walkable, such as Eugene, Oregon, or Portland, or or um, or Seattle as well. I mean, certainly communities that diversify the way we live and beautify the way we live around us are those that should be commended. And each one of those has made significant changes towards regenerative design and sustainable design. Where are the big population centers in the country in that list Say, for example, New York, L.A., you know, the, the, the big bursting at the seams centers. How are they doing in the scoring? Absolutely. Uh, Amanda Burden just gave a TED Talk, a fantastic TED Talk, which I highly recommend uh, uh, taking a listen to or a look at, um, where she was reached out to uh, by the mayor and asked, she was told, you know, our city is growing exponentially. Where are we going to put all these people? And so much like what I've been talking about, they took a transit-oriented community approach and they decided to incorporate areas for new development that were within a five- to ten-minute walk 
from their existing infrastructure, their trains, which they're very proud of. They have a fantastic system. She also worked on the New York High Line project, which I'm not sure if you're familiar with. And uh, one of my personal heroes, Piet Odulf, also worked on that as well. It's an elevated train, which had gone fallow. It had gone to seed. And people took to climbing up there and use, using it as a park, but in in an, in an unofficial way. And it took, actually, if, speaking of contentious, it took a great long period of, of time and, and fighting to to actually make this an official park. And people in New York love it. It is so beautiful. And it's just such a, a stunning example. Imagine being in an elevated park. It's like a magic carpet ride. <laughs> through the city, uh, you know, on a, on a green carpet. It's just such a beautiful system. And so uh, to answer your question, where do we put all these people and, and how do we all work together, you know, we really have to focus on either our existing infrastructure of trains or building new trains, such as we are in, in Southern California, and then making things easier to get around, you know, to not always have to be relegated to your car, especially in, you know, your home environments. Like, I live two blocks from a beautiful park, and uh, I should be able to walk there, you know. So, you know, really, we're and we're, we're talking to our, our councilman, Joe Buscaino, um, as well as our Congresswoman Nanette Barragon, who just moved into our building, so we'd like to welcome her. So we're talking, we're in talks about how to make my own hometown more walkable. And I really, I think that's why we formed, we formed a new campaign called Leaf Your Mark, hashtag leaf, leaf like a leaf on a tree, your mark. And it's a, it's really about, you know, engendering the communication in communities. It's it's about, you know, recognizing great examples of landscape architecture as well as calling out areas in need. So, you know, we recommend if you're on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and, uh, you know, you see an area that has just a stunning, it makes you feel great example of, of a landscape architecture project or if there's a vacant lot in your town or, or if you don't feel safe riding your bike or getting around, you know, take a picture of it and put that hashtag, leave your mark. I think that together, really, uh, it requires all of us join the conversation to make these these city beautification changes that that embedder all of our lives together. What would you say are the the greatest challenges? that you as a business owner face in this environment? Are there a lot of women entrepreneurs like yourself? Are there a lot of people enlightened in the space, or is it more of an uphill climb? Not many, actually. Not many women, uh, and certainly not many people doing what we're doing. And that's a great question, Elena. When I first started out, people said, what? Regenerative design? Huh? California natives? Drought tolerant? Low maintenance? What are you talking about? We want tropical plants. There's, there's, I have tons of water. I could turn the water on all day long and all night long. And then more and more people started waking up and it became better known what's going on around us. And, you know, we kept pushing ahead and, 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 you know, incorporating our role in landscape design, how we do. And so now we're on the forefront of, of this knowledge. But my advice, 
and that's actually advice that I was given by a mentor is tell everyone you meet what you do and share it. Talk about it. And what I did, as I said, maybe, you know, here's the work that I do and maybe you know someone or maybe you, uh, you know, may want to, uh, to to work on a project together, you know, in this in this vein of, of our expertise or maybe you know someone, so recommend me. And I did that, and more and more I met more people and took on better and better clients and better and better projects. And so I think, you know, if you're a young entrepreneur out there, you just have to speak up and, uh, you know, meet people around you. Let them know what what you have to offer and the work that you have to give. And I think that entrepreneurs have this great spirit. They have this passion and this drive, they have this fantastic idea that they want to share with the world. So my advice to them is share it, talk about it, tell people, tell people how you can help them. Everyone wants to, you know, help out a fellow uh, entrepreneur, I think. It sounds like in addition to the concept itself of beautification and landscaping and all of that, is involved in it, you also have to find a way to collaborate with people who may not always see these concepts from the same perspective, and that can be challenging in itself. How do you get these diverse people to agree on the concepts? Is there a a particular secret to that? I think many of us can... uh, learn from these strategies absolutely that's that's something that i strive towards every day and really i think the key is listening it's listening and having the courage to have a conversation with someone whom you may feel is different than you or who has diametrically opposite views of you because fundamentally we're all people and we all have the same basic needs to eat and to sleep and, you know, to share love. But we may have these different opinions on, on how to get there, how to get to work or how to get home or what we like to do for recreation. So it's really just about having a conversation and, you know, finding where we meet in the middle and then exploring ways that we can collaborate together and uh, affect the goals of, of each party in a positive and beneficial way. What do you see in the future? There's a lot of talk about self-driving cars. I just saw one the other day, cars that can fly that may be a reality in the not-so-distant future. I think it was talking about 2020, having actual cars on the streets that could fly an aging population that is now the largest segment that drives, all of these seemingly competing concepts and a demographic makeup that is very different from the one that we've had in past decades. What do you see from your perspective in the coming years? I think everyone sees their own future and has their own visions for it. And for me, I see a much greener future. I see a future where it is filled with beautiful plantings, where 
it's safe and comfortable and enjoyable to maneuver around our cities and to meet one another. I see cafes, I see bike lanes and, you know, play areas, bump outs where people can have a nice meal together. You know, I really see people creating better communities for one another. You think people are going to be able to put some of the uh, political acrimony that we're living in now and focus on quality of life? I think we have to. We can't get anywhere unless we can get along, right? <laughs> it takes a village, so they say. I can't do everything myself. I've had to rely on on working with diverse personalities and perspectives for decades. So, you know, I wouldn't be where I was if I hadn't learned to listen and get along and, and show respect. You know, it's just about being respectful. People who have different opinions than us shouldn't be maligned or disrespected. We should be able to find common ground and work together. And I think that when you give respect and kindness to others, they're they're more inclined to be respectful of you. What suggestions, what tips would you share with our listeners, Robin, in terms of your experience, ways that they might be better able to further their own business goals, but perhaps also be more aware of these issues of city beautification that will better their lives and their communities? Well, they can follow us on Twitter or Instagram or at our website, rdsla.com, and they can post with the hashtag LeaseYourMark, and they can, you know, in, they can increase the conversation around them, you know, really activate in their own communities because our communities are, are all of our responsibilities they they affect all of us and you know i think that when we play a more significant role in the world around us and we sort of wake up and and look at it through clearer eyes uh, at our community around us then that's when they'll succeed because that's when you start to meet more people that will join the team that you form to affect the change or to build your company or to grow as an entrepreneur or to, uh, you know, stake your claim in the world. It's really about that. It's really about opening your eyes and looking at the world around you. And, you know, people may not all be familiar with green infrastructure, but it affects all of us. Imagine all of the different side amenities that I was talking about, for example, bump outs or, you know, cafes on the streets or, or bike lanes. Imagine how many more people you'll be able to meet and talk to and maybe sell your future entrepreneurial goal to if you're in one of those environments versus being stuck by yourself in your car. I think sometimes we become so accustomed to the existing environment, we think that those concepts can't apply to our communities, that those are utopian concepts for model cities somewhere else, right? <laughs> well, maybe people think that, but then there are pioneers like me and, and our company, and we're working to change all that. These are very realistic goals, and they are happening more and more in the world around us and in our cities, and I have to tell you, it makes people so much happier, so much happier to live in a community like this. Uh, and, you know, that's fundamentally what drives us here 
is, is uh, increasing that level of happiness in our community. Sounds wonderful. <laughs> Thank you, Robin, for joining us from downtown San Pedro, California. Thanks for having me, Elena. It's been lovely to talk to you. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Robin Lynch, who is owner of Regenerative Design Studios, who discussed beautifying America's cities. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com. Dot com.